If you just hit with a stick, you will not get the right reaction. You'll get a kind of fortification impulse. But if you can accompany with diplomacy, whether that is roundtable talks to end apartheid or six plus one talks in Vienna for the Iran nuclear deal, then they can work, right? Then they're embedded in a larger context where you can create a better political reality and you can find people in the country under sanctions that are willing to work with the countries applying them. The AIG Global Trade Series 2023 is a series of podcasts brought to you by AIG in partnership with some of the world's leading centers of expertise on global trade. Visit www.aig.com forward slash GTS. The series moderator is Rem Kortovec of the Klingendahl Institute. Hello and welcome to this episode of the AIG Global Trade Series 2023. This is your host, Rem Korteweg, from the Klingendal Institute in the Netherlands. And today's topic is sanctions and screening, trade, conflict, and interdependence. Now, we seem to have entered a period where trade and economic interdependence are increasingly being weaponized. We see a rise in the use of sanctions, And at the same time, investment flows and exports are increasingly being viewed through a national security lens. Trade flows are being scrutinized, and economic relations are being leveraged to achieve foreign policy goals. But what implications does this have for international trade, and what should we expect for the future? Now, a number of things are coming together here. Over the past decade, there has been a marked increase in the use of economic sanctions, to punish an adversary, to deter, to prevent, to raise costs, or simply to make a political statement. It seems, as the appetite for the use of the military instrument wanes, that Western governments are increasingly looking at the use of instruments of economic pressure to pursue their foreign policies. Similarly, the flip side of the coin is that Western governments are increasingly concerned about their exposure to economic coercion and are trying to reduce the possibility that their economic ties with countries like China and Russia can be used to put them under pressure. In a way, this is designed to make their economies more resilient or less vulnerable to economic pressure from abroad. They are now looking at unwanted economic dependencies, and assessing whether investments by non-democratic countries in critical infrastructure or critical technologies should or shouldn't be allowed. Western countries are taking their resort to scrutinizing investment flows. Export restrictions are being put in place, and economic sanctions have become a central feature in the toolkit of Western statecraft. Now, today, I'm going to talk about these trends and what it means for the global trade landscape with two experts, drawing on historical insights, but also looking at current policy debates. We'll try to cover the use of sanctions, investment screening, and export controls, and try to understand why they are on the rise, which sectors are mainly affected, when the use of these instruments is effective, and what it means for the future of trade. And I'm really pleased to have two fantastic speakers join me here today from the U.S., I'm joined by by two terrific people that I hold in the highest regard. Firstly, from Washington, D.C., a warm welcome to Emily Benson. Emily is Director of the Project on Trade and Technology and Senior Fellow of Scholl Chair in International Business at the Center for Strategic and International Studies, CSIS for short. 
She focuses on trade, investment, and technology issues, primarily in the transatlantic context, and she also happens to be the expert on U.S. export control policies in critical technologies and the increased use of inbound investment screening. And from upstate New York, from Ithaca, I'm joined by Nicholas Mulder. Nick is assistant professor of history at Cornell University, and he specializes in political, economic, and intellectual history of the late 19th and the first half of the 20th century. He is also the author of, can I say, the Bible on economic sanctions. He published The Economic Weapon, The Rise of Sanctions as a Tool of Modern War, right before everyone else started to talk about sanctions early last year. Now, a very warm welcome to you both, and thanks so much for joining me here today. Let's get started. Nick, looking at you first, you looked at sanctions from a historic perspective. Why do you think are we seeing an increase in the use of sanctions over the past decade or so? And what parallels do you see between our current period and the one you looked at in your book, namely the early 20th century? I think the main reason why we're seeing such an increase in the use of sanctions in the last few years is due to a number of of reasons. But the first one is probably that it's easy for the West to use these measures compared to other tools, right? Military intervention. It simply is pretty convenient. And also it doesn't require as much political consensus as other policy measures do. Most of these measures can be taken with the simple use of executive tools. The other thing is I I think that it has an element of lack of alternatives. Direct military intervention since the 2000s, Iraq and Afghanistan remains quite unpopular in the West. And in the case of Russia and Ukraine, we provide a lot of military assistance and other forms of assistance, but there still is not appetite for direct NATO involvement for obvious reasons. And so there too, sanctions have to step in and, and do a large part of the lifting. And the final part is I think that the West finds itself in a particular position in the world economy. We have control over a number of important networks of globalization, be they technological and our role in supply chains for high-tech industrial goods, but also uh, in money markets and the control over the dollar, the euro, uh, the yen also, if you take the collective West, right, including Asian allies into account. And perhaps even you could say FDI is something that the West has as well, which it can use. So we have a number of specific levers and all of that, I think, makes it so that, that sanctions have just become a go-to instrument in the last few years. Right. And and so what you're saying is that in a way it's become easy as well as attractive for Western governments to use economic sanctions. Emily, when we turn to the, again, what I call the flip side of this conversation, when we look at how to reduce Western governments from becoming vulnerable to economic sanctions imposed from abroad and making our countries and economies more more resilient and, and, and less vulnerable, is that also something that's easy? Is the use of investment screening tools or imposing export controls, is that something that we see because they are attractive and easy or is something else behind it? I do not describe them as easy. And I think if you crack open the October 7th export control regulations on advanced AI chips to China, they are impenetrable, even for people who've worked in the sector for decades. And that really goes to show how tailored and legalistic a lot of these measures are. 
But I think from a philosophical perspective, they're easy to understand. And there are a couple of different things at play. First, if you look at the U.S. political context right now, there is a growing understanding or assumption that the likelihood of a black swan event in Taiwan occurring by the end of the decade as early as 2027 is extremely alarming and that we will not have ample time to move critical supply chains out of China. You can challenge that assumption, absolutely, and I think that we probably should continue to challenge that assumption. But if you work with it, it makes sense that the U.S. government is pursuing a set of policies that are both aimed at encouraging partner companies and countries to relocate to countries that don't pose a national security threat. At the same time, they're trying to control the critical outflow of technologies that could be used by China in a conflict against the West or the United States. All of that sounds fairly reasonable. If a foreign country has the vast majority of penicillin stocks, for example, that seems like a risk. We saw recently with vaccine manufacturing um, facility in North Carolina that does the plastic syringes, it was hit in an extreme weather event. And that will probably reduce one third of the available vaccines that we can access in the United States. That's a long way of saying concentration leads to risks. And so the U.S. is trying to pursue policies that build in additional resiliency to supply chains. When it comes to export controls, the U.S. government right now is focused on a couple in particular. This is advanced semiconductors, quantum technology, and artificial intelligence. The U.S. government has identified those as particularly deserving of additional controls under the assumption that the U.S. still maintains a technological edge in those technologies. I want to follow up on on this notion of which sectors particularly are are impacted by this growing weaponization, if you will, of economic interdependence. But firstly, Nick, from a historical perspective, are there any parallels between conversations that we're having today, say about both economic sanctions, as well as what Emily is talking about, kind of reducing the risks of concentration, of the necessity of diversification, of kind of managing supply chain risks. Do do we see any historical parallels with with other periods that you looked at? Yeah, definitely. I think that the, the current mood definitely bears strong resemblance to some aspects of the 1930s when countries started to take stock of their raw material supplies and they started to tally up how many crucial materials, for example, were in their political alliance worldwide as opposed to that of their received opponents. And it also came after a period when globalization, and depends a bit how you measure it, right, but trade as a share of world GDP is a useful basic metric. Globalization measured in that way had peaked in the early 30s, and then there was a huge depression. Now, we've not had something quite equivalent to the Great Depression. We had the 2008 financial crash, and then we had COVID, both of which were big blows to trade. But what happened in between, actually, and that's relevant, I think, for a lot of people in uh, the trade sector and in, in the traded, the corporate world who were working on interdependence, is that trade as a share of GDP has peaked in 2014. And today, it's already lower than it was in 2014. So something happened in the last decade where Regardless of security concerns already, globalization was starting to slow down the expansion of it. Countries have been trying to use it to their own benefit. 
The other parallel that there is is that in, in the interwar period in the 1920s, there was an attempt by the League of Nations to use sanctions to preserve peace and to prevent small wars, border conflicts, etc., from escalating into larger conflicts. Now, that's a very, of course, important function for the international system and for international organizations to play. But today, I would say that what we see actually is slightly different. We see now uh, not international organizations using sanctions, but we actually see coalitions of countries, particularly a US-led coalition with allies using this against their adversaries. And the other big difference is that whereas in the 1920s, this was used with success against small countries, when in the 30s, it was attempted to use sanctions against larger economies like Japan and Italy, um, and also it was threatened uh, regularly against against Nazi Germany, the use of it was much more difficult and it was not nearly as successful. So that's something that I think also has happened today. The last few decades, people have gotten used to using sanctions against smaller countries, Cuba, North Korea, Syria, Belarus, Myanmar, Venezuela, right? These are not necessarily with small countries, but they're relatively small economies. And certainly in military terms, they're relatively modest, uh, maybe with the exception of North Korea, since they, of course, have nuclear weapons. But the other ones remain relatively small on the world stage. Now that we're talking about Russia and Iran, this is on a different scale. And that does worry me because I think that the sanctions are much less effective against Russia and Iran, both as a deterrent and as a way of reducing our capacity. I think that what we're doing is postponing rather than averting. I'm going to pause you for a second because I want to get to the question of how to make these policy instruments effective in a, in a, in a second. I mean, it's interesting to hear sort of the historical parallel that you paint. I'm curious because, Emily, you've been watching U.S. policy in this field for quite some time. Do you have the feeling that we're, that from a U.S. perspective, there is a sense of of novelty to what's being done with, say, investment screening and, and, and export controls? Because we all know the example of, you know, CFIUS, for instance, the, the committee that, that effectively screens inbound investment has been around for quite some time. Is there new momentum? Is there a new sense of urgency? Or do you think that this, is, this new policy is based on already existing instruments that are already in the U.S. toolkit? I think in some ways, yes, and probably a disappointing answer in some, in most ways, no, it's not that novel. Nick alluded to historical references of U.S.-led coalitions, and the preeminent example in the export control context is COCOM, the Coordinating Committee for Multilateral Export Controls. This was a 17-member, primarily European members, plus, I believe, Japan and Turkey, who wanted to get together and multilateralize export controls during the Cold War, primarily aimed at Warsaw Pact member states. So you have a group of countries that undertake decisions to not export certain technologies or conventional weapons to countries that they think could use this technology in military applications. In the 1990s, very early on, in 1990, actually, Margaret Thatcher's government came to COCOM and said, look, the evidence is here that the Warsaw Pact is rapidly disintegrating. COCOM really doesn't need to exist anymore. A lot of the original documents from the COCOM period are actually quite interesting because the institution itself realized at the time the target is shifting. If the Warsaw Pact countries no longer exist in this current form, we should probably think about something new. Thus ensued the Vasnar arrangement, which is the replacement to COCOM. It's 42 members. It's in a lot of ways a much slimmer application of export controls. The lists of items covered are substantially smaller. 
It's much more surgical in nature. But this brings us back to today, which is that the U.S. was the leading force behind COCOM. It was the leading negotiator in a lot of ways for the Vosner arrangement. And today, with the application of these, in some ways, novel export controls, the United States has effectively changed the conversation again, shifting it to this new perceived threat environment. Whereas COCOM was aimed at the Warsaw Pact, the Vosnar arrangement sought to allow exports to an additional set of countries. Today, it looks like we're shifting a little bit back towards COCOM, where a block or one country in particular is the subject of additional scrutiny. Right. And that brings us back to sort of Nick's point before I interrupted him. Like, what are the tips and tricks to make economic sanctions in this case more effective? Or what what uh, you, you were you were describing how in the earlier period, in the early 20th century, sanctions were much more directed at, at, at large countries by a group of countries. Now we see a lot of sanctions on smaller countries. There is at the same time, I don't think that the IR literature is entirely convinced about the effectiveness of sanctions, that they actually are able to change foreign policies of target countries. And you also mentioned that now there's a lot of sanctions directed at Russia, of course, and at Iran. What have we learned over the past century or so of using sanctions about what makes them effective or not? I think that there's three main things probably. The first I would say is that the demands need to be sufficiently attainable or you know, fulfillable for the target country to actually accede to them. So you need to set the demands at a level where they can realistically be met. If you ask government, you know, overthrow yourself, stop existing, that's not a reasonable demand. But if you ask them, release these political prisoners or change this aspect of your policy, and if you can find the right conversation partner on the other side, uh, then it can work. And that brings me to the second point, which is the fact that sanctions, if they are to work, should always be embedded in diplomacy, always. If you just hit with a stick, you will not get the right reaction. You'll get a kind of fortification impulse. But if you can accompany with, with diplomacy, whether that is roundtable talks to end apartheid or six plus one talks in Vienna for the Iran nuclear deal, then they can work, right? Then they're embedded in a larger context where you can create a better political reality and you can find people in the country under sanctions that are willing to work with the countries applying them. And the final part for when they work is probably when you have, of course, broad international agreement on a big coalition joining. And that's, I think, where we're seeing now a very interesting thing, which is that for a long period, the West had the assumption that when we used our power over the networks of globalization, we were basically able to send the economy of any medium-sized to small country down the tubes, uh, Venezuela or Iran. We were able to impose really pretty significant damage on them. But with Russia, we have in many ways pulled out all the stops in the last year and a half. And their economy, you know, it's not doing amazing, but it hasn't collapsed and it actually is doing fairly okay. I mean, the stagnation that they have at the level of income is still something that many countries in the world would be glad to sign up for, fortunately. You know, I mean, for us, it, it seems like it's a failure, but we haven't really shown that we've been able to impose crippling damage. And part of that is because Asia is not on board. India and China alone are now big enough to completely undermine any Western sanctions effort, no matter if we are all agreed on it in the West and even have our Asian allies on board. So I think that forces a realization, which is that the rise of Asia, it's no longer something we can just sort of allude to. This is really a major geopolitical shift. I would argue this is the first geopolitical crisis we've seen in the last few decades 
where the economic power of Asia is fully on display for the first time, because Russia has been able to keep its economy afloat by just pivoting to Asia. A lot of people thought, no, no, you can't really do that. And it turns out they can. They're probably going to grow between 0.7 and 1.5% this year. Russia is going to expand three times as fast as the UK economy this year. That's kind of shocking. Yeah. Well, it also says a lot about the UK, uh, to, in, in all honesty. Yeah, but, it's um, a fair comparison. <laughs> yeah, and no, but it, 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 that's very interesting. It, it, it raises the question in my mind to what extent sanctions as such may have peaked in terms of their effectiveness. If we are in that sort of more fragmented geopolitical context where Asia writ large offers an, an alternative, if it's not on board, then what do these sanctions matter? Yeah, well, just very briefly on that, I think that is one way I would suggest we start looking at sanctions less as tools to achieve a goal and more as instruments with which to demarcate economic territory also. I think that's going to be the reality. I don't think we're going to see a slowdown of sanctions because they still fulfill a useful signaling function. They're important to our own domestic audiences. And I think that we should look maybe less at the efficacy in terms of changing minds and more at where do we see ourselves in the world and what are the alliances that are uh, that we are a part of? And this is interesting. Of course, of course, Asia as a whole is not unified. There are democratic countries in Asia. There are countries that are somewhat democratic, like Singapore, that are more on our side still than they are on the side of, say, China and Russia. And then you have countries that are democratic, but that are actually steering uh, a middle course uh, in Asia. And then, you know, you have authoritarian countries that are potentially more on the side of the West than on that of China. It's very complex there, right? But this is the sort of landscape that we're, we're dealing with. Yeah. Yeah. And then of course, don't forget South Korea and Japan, which are firmly in the, say, the the, the, the Western camp, if if you can call it that. Um, and that's really interesting. I mean, Emily, when you listen to sort of Nick's three points of how to make sanctions effective, the necessity to make them proportional to complement them with diplomacy and to have a broad coalition. What does that mean for your turf of export controls and investment screening? Where do you see some of those three elements come, come across? Or are there any other lessons that you can share on how to make them effective as policy instruments? So let me provide three highlights that I think make for particularly effective export controls. And the third definitely aligns with NICS, which is the importance of multilateralizing a policy. But first, I think the two most important items for effective export controls are, one, to minimize downsides. And that's actually quite challenging. We've seen already post-October 7th that there are Chinese attempts to design out Western technology. This is their own form of de-risking, to minimize exposure to foreign extraterritorial measures that could disrupt their own supply chains. Another problem is indigenization. And this is the idea that as China de-risks further from the proverbial West, they commensurately scale up their own efforts to develop this tech at a domestic level. And that not only creates a competitor to Western entities, but it also reduces the visibility that we have into their military capabilities and the proliferation of these high-tech goods more broadly. And so there are very significant downsides. Perhaps the most obvious downside is backfilling. And this goes to the issue of foreign availability of like products. The idea here is that if your government says, well, you can't send these items to China unless you obey by these very 
specific restrictions or bans in many cases that a competitor, a foreign competitor, could come in and provide that same item even at a higher cost. And so not only has your company lost market share, but your competitor is now gaining even more. This is the importance of multilateralizing controls. The second thing here is to offset costs. And this has come up particularly, again, in the context of October 7th, which is that firms who are asked to leave markets lose revenue. ASML is the obvious example in the Dutch context for export controls to China. Several American firms like NVIDIA, KLA, AMD have also lost hundreds of millions of dollars as a result of these export controls. And in order to get buy-in from the private sector and from allied governments abroad, the U.S. government needs to make sure that there's an adequate incentive structure to make sure that there is at least some offset to these costs. This can be finding alternative marketplaces, scaling up domestic production, but you can't justify these controls and expect everyone to want to stick around for your agenda. The last thing, the third that aligns with Nick is, like I said, multilateralization of controls. Unless you have allied buy-in, other countries can go in and backfill these products or they can play this kind of in-between awkward role in U.S.-China competition. We saw the U.S. very effectively get Japan and the Netherlands on board with October 7th, but that was diplomatically very inefficient. And it begs a lot of questions about to what degree this could be replicated in other sectors like quantum or AI, and whether or not there's still adequate political will among partners to want to sign on when there isn't really a sufficient incentives mechanism yet. When we look at sort of the, the sectors that are likely to be affected by this growing sense of looking at trade ties through a national security lens or this weaponization. And Emily, you mentioned already oh, semiconductors, quantum AI potentially is very much in the a, a focal point when it comes to export control restrictions or, uh, or export restrictions or export controls. At the same time, I'm curious to hear from you where you see the debate going in terms of outbound investment, but we'll, we'll, we'll get into that in a, in a second. I think from a sanctions perspective, Nick, I'd be curious whether your research has shown which type of sectors are particularly easy targets for governments to use. And are there any sectors that stand out based on your research? For sanctions, I would say that the easiest sectors are the ones that the sending country has the least trade exposure in. And this is, I think, how we should also understand a little of the U.S. use of sanctions, because the United States is kind of unique among rich, industrialized, advanced economies in that it has only a very small percentage of its own economy dependent on imports and exports. Now, of course, Apple manufactures iPhones in China, et cetera, but the U.S. economy as a whole is still enormous if you take out all of the traded sector. And that's actually extremely different from almost every Asian or European economy, many of which have combined export and import shares of GDP that are much larger, right? I mean, the Netherlands has a 150% trade to GDP ratio. The United States is only about 25%. So this is one area where the United States just encounters less domestic resistance from its own corporate sector in applying this. There are always some losers, but there are always enough winners left and I think that this is one thing that you need to find a sector that you yourself will not suffer an economic blowback from. So that's one area. The other is, of course, where your 
target country has a particular weakness. In the case of Russia, it was clear that Russia is extremely self-sufficient and relatively well endowed with commodities and raw materials, but depends on technology and on Western know-how, right? Oil and gas running for its aviation sector and in general for any advanced manufacturing that takes place there. So that's where I think those are the sanctions on Russia that will end up having the biggest long-run impact are in those sectors where they're very important. And when it comes to export controls, uh, Emily, besides sort of Semicon, Quantum, and AI, are there any other key technologies that you think are really in the focus of policymakers to develop policy instruments for? So historically, export controls have been applied primarily in the non-proliferation context, chem-bio, nuclear weapons, the really scary stuff that you want to absolutely ensure your components and technology and people are not facilitating the development of. That has shifted, particularly under this administration, as the definition of national security changes. And I think if we look at increasing digitization of the global economy, this is really the driving factor. We have nefarious AIs, for example, or algorithms that can feed misinformation. We have algorithms that can soak up all of your biometric information and potentially use it against you. Those are not necessarily caught by existing export controls, which were designed for the hardware era. So I think it's right in some ways that the focus is on emerging technology. But the problem with export controls is that they're always aiming at a moving target. So what's emerging or new today may not be tomorrow, a target country or a country who has a dominant choke point over quantum cold technology today may not still maintain that dominating role in 10 years. And so export controls perpetually need to be updated to keep up with the current context. One critique of the Vasnar arrangement is that it's very slow. I think the next major plenary meeting is next April. And Russia's membership in the consensus-based organization provides it veto-like authority within the institution. And so updates have basically not materialized inside the framework. That has enabled the administration to take a step further and really defining what critical technologies are and setting the agenda at an international level. And until we get back to a more functional, multilateral approach to controls, we will be ceding the definition making to one government in particular. But at least in the area, in a way, of export controls, there is something of a multilateral framework when it comes to sanctions, but correct me if I'm wrong, Nick, it's very much sort of coalitions of the willing. It's very much one-off. There isn't a central location or a forum where folks or governments discuss whether to impose sanctions or not, or how to build coalitions. This takes place in a G7 or a, or a EU-US uh, context. Yeah, in, in theory, there is, of course, and in practice, in the past, the United Nations used to do this and the Security Council, and you see that some of the most widely supported sanctions regimes were the one that the Security Council decided on, like on Iraq in the 1990s. And that's also when China and Russia either agreed or abstained from voting. But because the current mindset is very much that it's the West against China and Russia, the Security Council is sort of ipso facto, you know, not in the picture anymore. And we're dealing exactly with different sorts of bodies that are not multilateral, but coalitional. And one other area where I really think that both the economic sanctions and the export control world really come together is in this field of, say, high, high-end technology. 
where you see on the one hand, the purpose of sanctions, if not by themselves to get an adversary to change their mind, at least is able to raise the costs of their policy to continue, say, raise the costs of Russia to continue its war in Ukraine, or to raise the costs of China to to try to achieve technological dominance in a number of areas. At the same time, export restrictions, say the ones on October 7, on semiconductor and semiconductor manufacturing machines, has the same purpose. It's not designed as such to create changes in foreign policy. It's mainly meant to delay and to set back progress in in, in certain fields. Where do outbound investment controls come in? Because it seems that this is a new area where both the United States and Europe are really trying to find new policy instruments to avoid also investment flows in particular critical sectors in, say, China, to scrutinize those for the implications it might have for the um, competition in in the technological realm. Yeah, I'm happy to take a stab at that one. So export controls very simplistically control outbound items, technology, software, and know-how to foreign entities of concern. Inbound investment screenings, which in the U.S. is overseen by the Treasury Department and Committee on Foreign Investment in the U.S., screens inbound capital flows. That kind of leaves an obvious gap in U.S. policy, which is that we do not currently screen outbound capital flows into sectors of concern in countries of concern. The creation of this tool originally came up in the 2018 Export Control Reform Act and FIRMA debates, and it has had a kind of complicated evolution since then. But the administration is now poised to take executive action to create basically what would establish the first ever notification regime in the United States that would cover certain outbound investments to primarily China in the sectors we've mentioned, quantum, AI, and semiconductors, and subject those to basically a paperwork scheme to let the Treasury Department know that these outbound investments are occurring so that the government can get a better sense of the volume and nature of these outbound capital flows. It's curious because uh, we have a couple of these regimes already in place. Japan has one that's very, very targeted and potentially not often used. Korea, same thing. Taiwan has a more robust outbound investment screening tool, but the European Union doesn't. And the United States has been very keen on moving forward this discussion in the EU. European Commission President von der Leyen mentioned outbound investment, I believe, in this past March, and she's called for the creation of this new tool at the EU level. Appon Investment also made some guest appearances in both the G7 Leaders Communique and the European Economic Security Strategy document, and most recently, the German strategy on China that came out in July. And so it looks like there's sort of a tepid allied endorsement of the potential utility of this type of tool, but there are serious questions about how you actually track outbound capital. It is not physical. I'm sure Nick has thoughts on tracking sanctions flows. And so there are a lot of kind of institutional hurdles to overcome in order to make sure that this is both sufficiently surgical and that it can actually be carried out by current government institutions, not only here in the U.S., but also in allied economies. 
but it's definitely a space to watch because I, I mean, sitting in 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 the Netherlands, I can tell you that th- this is very much a live debate. It's still a little bit uncertain to say at the moment where things are heading, because, like you say, from a, it, it's not entirely clear what the role of the EU would be as opposed to the individual member states, and how you how you identify what unwanted outbound investment flows are, uh, let alone if you have the government capacity to be able to track all of this. That brings me to particularly that practical question that you just mentioned in a, in a byline that, that Nick might have thoughts on. This new world, if you will, which we're moving towards of economic, more economic sanctions, more export restrictions, more scrutinizing investment flows. What does that mean in terms of governmental capacity? How do you prep governments to be able to function in that in that new environment? Well, I think that, that this was a challenge in the early 20th century. At the time, uh, sanctions had been the rise of sanctions had been preceded by a big surge in globalization, and there was a big, uh, very much an attitude of laissez-faire economics. Free trade was very positively regarded, and I think that's been very similar. Right, the last three, four decades since the 70s was the era again of a kind of high economic liberalism in which people thought that the more of this, the better. And now we're moving into a more scrutinizing mindset. And that means that governments need to build institutions that didn't exist. And something that was seen as an unalloyed good now is seen in in other ways. I think it's very important that some domestic government institutions look at this. And this is particularly the kind of risk insurance side of things, right? You want to make sure that you actually have stockpiles of crucial things. I think that this is not even a national security issue in that sense. It's just the pandemic that showed it, that you need to have stockpiles of medical equipment and food and these sorts of things. And it should be considered normal that countries have large inventories of that. That should not be considered something worrisome. And it seems just uh, smart and prudent to do that. On the other hand, of course, you do have these technologies where there are other risks And here, I think, actually, I am still very much undecided. And I also try and figure out how to do this because dual use is a very philosophical question, right? Many things in our modern technological era can be uh, very important to sustaining our civilization taken by themselves. But if you put them in a different assemblage, all of a sudden, they can become an essential part of a deadly weapon. So that seems to me to require a kind of different way of thinking about things. And it's very difficult because it's very much what is the ensemble that such an input forms a part of. And I think it's very difficult to draw that line clearly. So I think the dual use screening and sort of figuring out an international convention for dual use is one part. And Emily, I mean, without getting into sort of the... <laughs> The division of competences at the between the EU and the member states and sort of the all of government approach that you would probably need. What what kind of observations do you have regarding sort of government capacity to be able to deal with this challenge? So on the EU question, I think what's an interesting difference about FDI screening versus the creation of an outbound investment screening instrument is that when FDI screening came into law in the EU in 2017, 12 EU member states already had that domestic statutory authority to screen inbound investment. So it was a relatively lighter lift at the time to get that off the ground at the EU level. Right now, no single member state has outbound investment screening authority. So you're starting from zero. Another difference is that there's not really a political champion within the EU who is really keen on seeing this all the way through. 
And so from the get-go, the political conditions are different that sort of restrains momentum to create this tool. I think there are a lot of curious folks at both the member state level and the commission who would like to see how the U.S. policy unfolds. There are questions to hear about how many people will be reviewing these files, whether or not an outbound regime actually does stop at notifications, how they manage bans that are very targeted. I was talking to someone who's a longtime CFIUS lawyer recently who shared the statistic that in some cases, a single CFIUS case will be reviewed by 300 people across agencies in the United States. If you're a young, eager staffer in the U.S. government and you want to demonstrate to your boss, look, I'm really tuned in to these national security considerations, you'll find something. And that has the effect of creating more barriers to investment over time. And so for outbound investment, it'll be key to make sure that we have adequate staff, but that it doesn't balloon in size to create the conditions that have proliferated under CFIUS, where it's really a black box, uh, turnaround times are slow, and far too many people are reviewing cases that probably don't merit review to begin with. Thanks. That's super interesting. It'll be re- really interesting also to follow the, um, the, the U.S. outbound investment uh, uh, debate as it moves along. There's one thing really on my mind listening to ourselves talk about this, which is we're very Western-centric in talking about sanctions and in talking about export controls. We talk about it as if it's things that we do to other countries. What you mentioned, Emily, I think is really interesting, and I want to pick up on that. In one of your earlier answers, you said that one of the risks of export controls is this element of indigenization, that say we avoid particular exports going to China, and what China is going to do, it's going to develop it itself, and then we don't have eyes on that, which raises all sorts of risks. The question is, what are other countries doing in response to the fact that we are, A, increasingly using economic sanctions, and B, imposing export restrictions, and C, scrutinizing investment flows? How are they adapting to this new environment? Are we seeing a tit-for-tat approach? Are, say, China and Russia developing counter-sanctions of their own? Are they tweaking them? Are they making themselves also less susceptible to Western economic pressure? Are we seeing potentially Chinese extraterritorial sanctions emerging? What are your thoughts on how the other side, if you if you will, is is responding to this new environment? Well, this is also something that I would say we have seen before to some degree, and it's not necessarily a pretty picture because in the 30s, this tendency ended up producing in target states, oftentimes something that I've called it in, in my work, blockade phobia. So a, a general paranoia about dependence and not just uh, attempts to make uh, the production of technology self-sufficient, but also uh, in that time, one way of actually securing those resources tended to be to invade your neighbors. Now, I don't think that there's any risk of that today, which is good. I do think that the broader mentality of being in an embattled position that uh, we end up reinforcing that on the other side. So to my mind, there's too much talk about deterrence and risk and too little about reassurance and diplomacy. And we need to get that balance straight again. I think, I mean, this is just my observation as a European in the United States. And I think the United States has now kind of gone a bit too far in the direction of focusing only on the deterrence under for understandable domestic reasons. But I think on the side, China particularly seems to be a lot more prudent in its policy than Russia. 
And I think that we should really work with that while we while we can and not let things deteriorate to a point where we can no longer salvage it. And I don't think that there's much of a risk of retaliation because these uh, countries don't have that many tools. And the irony now is actually that they continue to bet on interdependence and on trade. And that is a quite striking thing that both China and Russia continue to want to trade a lot more, I think, and, and continue to insist that they want an open world economy. But it's actually the West that has now entered a period where we say, oh, you know, if we think that that era of neoliberalism or whatever you want to call it is over, we want industrial policy again. We want tariffs. We want screening and risk. So that is also something that's quite striking. And I think we should try and find a balance again, because particularly for European and Asian countries, trade is existential for us also. You know, we need that and we need to have the benefits of interdependence. And there are definitely risks, and we should talk about that and develop the capacity to deal with it. But if we only talk about the risks, we end up producing potentially worse outcomes. So do it hand in hand with diplomacy and reassurance that this is not about decoupling. Completely agree. I think an interesting case study here is the Republic of Korea. In a lot of ways, they're sort of caught awkwardly in the middle between the U.S. and China. They have very significant exposure in Chinese markets to advanced chip making, to memory chips in particular. And the United States government, after Micron was basically pushed out of important infrastructure projects in China, the United States government has pleaded with the Koreans not to backfill what Micron was supplying. The Koreans are also under increased pressure from the October 7th export controls. They've received a one-year waiver to basically continue business in China, but a one-year waiver isn't a long runway period in the chip sector when it takes several years to build alternative fabrication facilities. And so Korea is one country in particular that I'm watching to see how they navigate this very tricky period ahead, where it could reach a moment where tensions escalate, particularly in the trade and export control context, and they need to make some tough decisions about the future of their investments. However, it's important for the U.S. government to really realize what they're asking of allies, restraining potentially billions of dollars of exports to foreign markets is a huge cost. And again, this goes back to my earlier point, which is the U.S. needs to, first of all, realize exactly what they're asking of allies and then try to build out through an affirmative trade agenda how they can keep costs low and efficiencies high to the degree possible. And if I may, what what are your thoughts on potential Chinese retaliation for the October 7 export restrictions? Well, we've already seen some Chinese retaliation, like the Micron case that I just referenced. I think the next thing that's coming down the pike is potential Chinese overcapacity of analog chips. And so the idea here is we'll just start producing at very large volumes uh, lower end stuff that would undercut the competitiveness of Western produced chips. So how we deal with that, whether or not we implement ADs, CVDs in the future, or we kind of go into this escalatory period remains to be seen. But those effects could be particularly pronounced because the semiconductor sector itself is very cyclical. It goes up and down. We're kind of entering a down period. And so Chinese weaponization of these mid-tier chips can actually be quite harmful to the U.S. market. There we have it. We've entered a, a world of managed trade and industrial policy. And I, I think, I mean, unfortunately, this is we, we really have to close because we've run out of time. But I just want to echo one of the things that Nick said right at the end, that there is a real risk 
in my mind to overdo it on the risk side, to not understand and not fully appreciate how dependent European and Asian, but also the U.S. economy still is on on trade, on getting stuff from abroad that it doesn't produce itself. And there is a real challenge of avoiding throwing away the baby with the bathwater as we try to address very relevant and and very uh, self-explanatory and and, and reasonable concerns regarding national security and, and economic ties. To find the right balance, that's of course the the challenge for uh, for the coming years. Unfortunately, this is all we have time for today. I, I thought this was really fascinating. We could have gone on for uh, uh, for at least an hour, I think. Um, thank you very much to Emily Benson and to Nick Mulder for talking to me today about sanctions and screening, about how uh, the global trade landscape is changing uh, because of concerns about economic interdependence. If you are interested in this podcast or any of the other conversations we've had for the AIG Global Trade Series, please access our podcasts at www.aig.com slash GTS or simply get them on your podcast app. The AIG Global Trade Series 2023 is an international partnership between AIG, the Aspen Institute Germany, SEBRI, the Brazilian Center for International Relations, Chatham House, the Klingendahl Institute, the Institute of International Economic Law at Georgetown University Law Center, the International Chamber of Commerce, UK and France, ISPI, the Italian Institute for International Political Studies, the Jacques Delors Institute, Rieti, the Research Institute of Economy, Trade and Industry, and the St. Gallen Endowment for Prosperity Through Trade. To access articles and opinion pieces from partners in the Global Trade Series and to listen to more episodes on global trade, visit www.aig.com forward slash GTS or follow the AIG Global Trade Series wherever you get your podcasts.